Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello everybody and welcome to the Brendan Option. Father Brendan Kilcoyne here in the in the parish house in Athenry. I hope you're all keeping well. I do not come to you today empty-handed. I think you might have something to take away from this. I think I might have some treats from town. So if you bear with me for the next few minutes, I just want to take a slightly different look at Lent, which is to say, really, a slightly different look at the Christian vocation. And all right, let's dispense with the abstractions. A slightly different look at what you and I should be doing in response to God's invitation to us. Because God is calling us. And God is calling us powerfully in Lent. A voice cries in the wilderness. I think I've probably told you the story before, but should I give it a shot again? In any case, I'm getting old. I can't remember whether I've told stories before or not, and I can't be bothered trawling back through all the episodes. I think it was Ingrid Bergman who was working herself into a role, and she, she was finding it very frustrating, and Hitchcock, the director, noticed her distress, and he asked her what was the matter, and she said, I can't feel it. I can't, I can't feel the emotion to which Hitchcock replied with, infuriating, supercilious dismissal, faked Ingrid and walked away. And what you have is a clash there from two, two approaches, neither of them young. I mean, they're both old enough approaches, but one is very old. One is it's the approach of the old ham, of the old, the, the old actor, you know, treading the boards or director who just, just get on with it, just pretend. Uh, you know, what we're selling here is an illusion. You pretend. And that takes considerable skill. It takes great skill. And then you have the, another approach to acting, which is called method acting. And, and that owes its origin, I think. But look, you theatre and, and cinema buffs out there can correct me. I think it owes its origin to, to Stanislavski, the pre-revolutionary Russian director and thinker. He didn't die until the late 30s. I don't know if he was still in Russia then. My God, I don't know what he made of it if he was. He died in 38, I think. That was, wasn't that the year of the terror? Or did it begin in 37? It was full-blown in 38, anyway. It was an awful time in Russia. But he had learned his trade under the Ancien Regime in Russia. And he pioneered uh, an approach that involved really a spiritual journey. Now, I want you to keep something in mind here, because maybe you're saying, you know, this guy really is in getting into his second childhood. He's raveling. What's he going on about acting? I'm not wasting your time. Stick with me, because here, and I'm telling you, you look at the history, you look at the anthropology, the theatre and religion are very closely connected and not at the level of superficiality or illusion. They are very closely connected. So please don't, please don't dismiss me. Bear with me for a while on this. I think this approach, the Stanislavski approach, is fascinating because it involves a journey by the actor out of himself or herself and into this character. But as Stanislavski himself says in his class, I, I mean, I can't read Russian. It's, it's a, I read it in English. An actor prepares. That was the name, that's the name of it. And as he says himself, you can't really do that unless you know yourself. So the actor has to know themselves in order to begin the journey. And then you must not only come to know 
the person you're depicting, but you must also be able to stand outside yourself and watch yourself do it with detachment so that you can actually, this is very difficult to do, but I mean, isn't this what we're supposed to be at? I mean, this guy, he should have been a priest. This guy, <laughs> while I'm on the subject, that's what Stalin's mother said to him. I don't know if you've heard the story. It's a true story. When she asked, she asked him, what are you now? And he said, well, you know, you remember the Tsar? And she said, yeah, well, he said, I'm like the Tsar. She said, you'd have done much better to be a priest. Stalin studied for the priesthood for about five years. <laughs> See where that can go. I'm saying that because Stalin would have been ruling Russia at the time Stanislavski died. This is a spiritual journey in method acting. It's a spiritual journey. Now, I can think of great method actors off the top of my head. A few of them, I think I'm right in this. Right, Birdman, fine, but I think Lon Chaney, who played the hunchback of Notre Dame, he played Quasimodo um, back in the day in that classic film. And he's just superb in it. It's a wonderful performance to this day. I remember watching it as a kid and I was deeply, deeply upset and disturbed to see how he was being treated. You know, I grew up in an Irish, small Irish village and in Ireland at the time for all of our Christianity, people who were, had special needs, people who, they were often laughed at and mocked. I recognized something when I saw the, with the, the performance, which was heart-wrenching. He found it difficult to achieve the posture, the gait, kind of a shambling gait, and, and the, the distorted voice, the distorted expressions, facial expressions. So as far as I know, he constructed a fairly hideous arrangement, a wire cage arrangement that he had to put on and that forced his body into the postures necessary. And he also fitted something inside his mouth. And apparently he, he nearly damaged his health. Because of course, he had to spend quite a lot of time during the takes with the, using this. I'm thinking of uh, Meryl Streep, who's a great actress who, who uses that approach. Um, Robert De Niro, who, you know, for Raging Bull, he put on weight. He put on a huge amount of weight for the later parts of it. I'm thinking of really an actor that I admire, I think maybe more than any other is Daniel Day-Lewis, who, by the way, I just want to make the point, by the way, grew up, part of his growing up was in my home parish in Lewisburg, County Mayo, where apparently he still has friends. I, I never met him there, but apparently he still has friends there. Uh, his, his sister Tamson, who's a very well-known cookery writer and uh, presenter, she does live there now. Nearly all the people down there would know her. I just, I, I just revere this guy. I revere him. And I think he's at his best. He is at his best depicting prisoners. You remember the name of the father? But I mean not just in prison. Do you remember his breathtaking performance of Christy Brown? Do you remember A Room with a View, where he, he just gave a magnificent performance of somebody hopelessly trapped in a, a web of social obligations and trapped as well in his own uh, sort of faux esthete self-image. And then again in The Age of Innocence, where he's a fly on a web, again caught in a, in a web of social obligations, upper-class social obligations, 
and, and cursed with the restless spirit and the Stanislavski ability to watch himself acting his role so that it becomes almost unbearable for him. He's really repays study, Deleuze. Now, I do recommend his performance of Lincoln in, in the eponymous film in, in Lincoln uh, about seven years ago. I watched it. I went out to it. That was my treat on my 50th birthday. And it was a treat. Honestly, it was like the scriptures. It was honey in my mouth. It was honey to my eyes and ears. It was a treat. His performance, the film wasn't perfect, but his performance was absolutely wonderful. Because Lincoln, you know, Lincoln did not have a good speaking voice. A lot of people are surprised by that. They would expect that Lincoln had a sonor sonorous and magnificent speaking voice in the rhetorical flourishes of the day and all the rest of it. He didn't. He had a high, reedy voice. And it's well described by people who knew him at the time. There are no recordings. But um, Day-Lewis obviously studied, thought, practised and made this spiritual journey into Lincoln. And he is Lincoln. It's a, a performance highly regarded by historians. I really do and I recommend it to you. And I think it is it Sally Fields who plays Mary Todd Lincoln, the, the wife. And boy, does she bring her across because Mary Lincoln was deeply disturbed woman. And she really brings across the way she could change in a flash, in an instant. But Day-Lewis as Lincoln is just superb. Now apparently, for weeks, indeed months beforehand, he inhabited the role even in his house and among his family. Can you imagine living with that? I mean, it would be entertaining in the beginning, but not after a while. But also I have another question to ask here is, does anyone do that and come out in one piece? Is it possible to come out of a role like that, having done all the reading, all the research, all the preparation, all the practice, and then the shoots and the t endless takes and then all the afters and everything? How do you debrief? How do you decompress? How do you come out of that without, so to speak, the psychological and spiritual bends? You know what the, the divers get, deep sea divers, if they come up too quickly, the bends. This horrific uh, condition brought about by, is it oxygen getting into the blood? I don't know. How do you do that? It is much easier, as Olivier said, to just do acting nearby. But to make that journey, to be that person, wow, that's incredible. Uh, another performance I'd throw out to you, a dark performance, surely, but superb, is the performance of the, the late and much lamented Swiss actor Bruno Gantz, whom you might remember from the celebrated um, take on the Dracula genre back in the, was it the 70s, Nosferatu? Klaus Kinski played the vampire, played Dracula, and he played Jonathan Harker. He was superb in it. But his performance as Hitler in, in uh, Downfall, uh, the story of the last days of Hitler, loosely based, I think, on the, uh, well, fairly tightly based, actually, on the writings of the, the superb German historian Joachim Fest. And apparently Fest, who, who's dead now for some time, but Fest saw the film, and he regarded the performance as definitive, because th that has been done by a number of other actors. Uh, Stephen Burkhoff did it, and uh, Anthony Hopkins did it, and none of them came... None of them came within Anas's roar of, of what Gantz did. It was an incredible performance. How do you do that? I mean, can you imagine doing that? 
playing Hitler. And he actually brings him across as a nice guy in some ways. Can you imagine in doing something so complicated and coming back out of it? How do you do that? James Gandolfini, the late James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. Now at this stage you're asking me, you know, why is he banging on about actors so long? Why is he going on about this? Listen, I'm not just talking about actors. I'm talking about pilgrims. These are pilgrims. These are odysseys I'm talking about. These are odysseys. They're great epic journeys from which you have no guarantee that you'll come back. Look at Robin Williams, a gifted man. Look at, um, oh, that, that just superb actor, uh, the poor man, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, both lost to suicide. The, the, the price is very high for this kind of commitment to one's art. I remember that one of the things the Greeks said about theatre was one of the things it produced was catharsis. It affected a means by which terrifying, profound emotions could be worked through. Think of the great Greek plays, the Orestia, which, I mean, can be watched and are performed to this day. The playwright Aeschylus said, uh, uh, oh, Sophocles, I mean, all of these, all of these people. I don't know what I'd be able for. But I do know one thing, that these people are serious. These are professionals. These are tradespeople. These are craftspeople. I go back to Evelyn Waugh, who always, he loved that thing of the writer as craftsman. These are craftspeople. And they get their hands dirty. They get down and dirty. And they make themselves look ridiculous. And they must feel ridiculous at times. They could say like the prophets, you know, I'm a thing, I'm a thing of derision to, to, to my countrymen in order to achieve that one, never perfect because we're human, near perfect performance, to almost steal fire from the gods, to almost graze the sun with your wings. What a thing to do. We're in Lent. And let me tell you, my friends, that where you are, is in a theatre workshop because that is what the church gives you for Lent. There are very close links anthropologically between the theatre and religion as there are between sport and religion. Don't underestimate it. Actors, actresses, it was regarded as being little, little above the level of prostitution once by uptight Victorian society. But with the films it rightly came to be more respected. Now probably it commands far too much respect. Well, you know, the wrong kind of respect. I mean, celebrity cult thing, you know. Now Lent is a theatre workshop. I mean, another image for it, obviously, is the, it's the agoge, it's, it's, the, it's the training barracks, like for the Greek soldiers. But today I want to take the image of the workshop, theatre workshop. I want to take the image of, of, of an acting masterclass because that's what it is. It's a masterclass in acting. And I want to go with that. Lent is the place where we go through the excruciating process of thinking and praying our way into another role. And in doing so, having to confront our own selves. And even while in the role, having to stand outside ourselves to watch ourselves perform critically. Now, if you doubted that Christianity was a hard trade, let me tell you, 
that it is a hard trade. It is it is a hard road. But the craft of the actor is one way in which we can try to express the inexpressible. It is one way in which we can try, as in, in Eliot's words, to raid the inarticulate. One way in which we can try to talk about that which can just barely be talked about. Theatre workshop. To tread the boards. To act. And if we're to do this, we have to be serious. And what is this role? This is the greatest role any actor can be asked to perform. Because if you look at the readings today, you see in Genesis, you see the story of God's near despair, so to speak, figuratively speaking, at the evil of the human race and at the sins of the human race. And so God is sending the punishing and purifying flood. Okay, that's what you have in Genesis. Then in the Gospel, we have Christ. In Christ, we have God. Now, I, I've, I've talked about this before. We have God coming into humanity in a, in a way so radical that he experiences, although without sin himself, he experiences temptation in the desert. This is God as method actor. This is Stanislavski God. And if you're going to laugh, just be grateful I'm not giving you Tarantino God. We'll come to that in another podcast. This is Stanislavski God. This is the God who is so determined to harrow hell, who is so determined to get every possible soul who will come with him into his kingdom, to save them, to pull as many out of the out of the Lithian waters, as many out of the dark waters of pointlessness and despair and chaos and nothingness, to pull them out of hell itself. Because it's been well said that one cry for mercy would empty hell. And someone else said the lock is on the inside of the door. It's on the inside of the door in hell. They have themselves there. Whoever is there, we can't judge. This God is a driven hunter. I'm thinking of the Hound of Heaven. You remember that poem, The Hound of Heaven, by Francis Thompson? The dog's unvarying stride, untiring stride, in spite of all the frantic attempts of the prey that is the human soul to dodge this way and that. This is the God who is intent upon us, and he learns to be us. He is born into a human family of a human mother and receives the spiritual fatherhood of a human father. And spiritual fatherhood is, is profound fatherhood. An adoptive father, an adoptive parent is profoundly apparent. This God is raised by a human family. This God is baptized even though he has committed no sin. He follows us down into the waters of death and rises back up with us. This God is tempted in the desert by a devil who would not dare to trail his coat in the presence of the deity. Except now he can, because the same deity has made himself so terrifyingly vulnerable by taking on this role. And what do we do in return? What are we asked for in return? We are asked to join him in the trade of the stage. 
We are asked him to join him in the dramatis personae. We are asked to, to, to join his theatre company. And in the words of St. Paul, I think it's Romans 13. In the words of St. Paul, to put on Christ. Like a costume, like a robe, like a vestment, if you're a priest. To put on Christ like a role in the theatre. But this is sacred theatre. This is the theatre not of the absurd. This is the theatre of absolute ontological truth, of that which absolutely is. The theatre of reality and the true. This role, you must take on this role and you must become this role. And that's terrifying because we cling to our bit of wreckage even though the people in the lifeboat are beckoning to us. We cling to our bit of wreckage because we are afraid of the sea in between. Like St. Peter who steps out of the boat when he thinks he sinks. I'm not saying stop thinking. I'm saying start thinking differently. Better still, let God think for you. He's better at it. But that's a decision you have to freely make. Will you take the part? It's on offer. He likes you. Will you take the part? And remember if you take this part, to be Christ in the world, you must think, work, walk, talk, gesture, pray, be into this part. You must be in him so that when others see you, they see him. Now you may say, oh, well, that's a load of lovely, highfalutin, airy, fairy. So how, how on earth do you do that? The Holy Father has pointed out one way. Uh, he did it early in his pontificate and it was, I must say, it really pulled me up. So I thought it was a very good point. He said, when you pass a beggar, and we'll see plenty of them yet in Ireland. This last year has to be paid for. When you see a beggar, he says, do you give him anything? Well, I often do, personally. I mean, me, I often do. I often do. I don't give too much, but I often do. I do because I'm a nice guy? No. No, I, I, I do it because the poor are close to God and I'm afraid of them. So, for the sake of God, I give them something. And basically, I'm a decent person, you know, basically, in spite of my best efforts. I got a decent rearing, so I'd throw them some few bob. And then he asked, and this is where I fell down. I don't know about you. Do you look them in the eye? Do you talk to them? Do you ask their name? If you know it, do you call them by their name? That's a lot to ask. Certainly of someone like me who's selfish. Because, I mean, if you start asking people their name, the next thing you start asking them how they are, the next thing you know they'll tell you. Do you want their problems in your life? This is tricky business. So we pay them to bugger off. Come on, you know that that's what we're at. I mean, the Irish pay a fortune to Trocra every year. And the Irish are generous people. But is there not a sense in which, okay, I know I'm really in danger now of offending good people here, but I'm just, look, I'm just bouncing the ball. I'm not saying it is. 
I'm just asking. Is there not a danger is that we're paying them to stay where they are and not bother us? I, I don't know. I do know that I'm personally very challenged by that. I'm very challenged by that challenge of the Holy Father. I remember listening to a story once. I, I, we, we were having a retreat in the Irish College in Rome and uh, a priest was giving us a retreat. Good guy, very good guy. And he was big into uh, one of the spiritualities of the ecclesial movements that are going in the church at the moment. And it showed. He had a lot to say and I must say he was, you know, we enjoyed him. We, we enjoyed him a lot. And um, he, he told us a story of how he had been coming out of the Gregorian University, which is the university most of us were in. And it has a flight of steps going up to its front doors from the Piazza della Pilota, the little square on which it's situated. And this is the main building, the Faculty of Theology and, and Arts. And he, he was going up the, the, the steps and um, he passed a, a beggar. And there were a lot of beggars at that time in Rome. I'm talking the early 90s. And the beggar asked him to give him some help. And he said, well, OK, I prefer not to give you money, but I'll get you something to eat if you'd like. So the beggar said, I'd like a panini. You know, it's a, it's a lovely Roman bread. It's, it's kind of like a very big bun, an American-style muffin, OK? Kind of hollow in the middle, crusty and, and delicious. So he said, OK, no problem, I'll go in and get it for you and I'll bring it out to you. So he went into the canteen and he bought one of these and paid for it and brought it back out. He went all the way back out to the, to the begging man who was outside and he gave it to him, feeling very good with himself. And the, the man held it and he said, but father, he said, it's, it's cold, it's not warm, I'm freezing. Because it's cold in Rome in the winter. So your man thought, all right. So he bit his lip, he took, the, <laughs> took it back from him. He went all the way back in. He said a prayer for strength that he wouldn't be mean. He put it in the heater and he brought it back out to him and gave it to him. Now, a few of us were dying laughing listening to this and we commented afterwards that we'd have given the bun on top of the head to the beggar. <laughs> and I have a fair idea that's what I'd have done. I said, now you can have, now you can have it hot. But he was right and I was wrong. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to treat someone like a human being, treat them like a human being. If you're sitting there on the steps of a big building on a freezing day and you're frozen, I mean, wouldn't you like something warm? Just something warm to lift your spirits. So I'm just saying there is no reason for you to just dismiss what I'm saying as a load of airy fairy nonsense. I can give you, and I can give myself, some very practical ways in which you can inhabit this role. Another way is fasting, and we're in the middle of Lent. And our Lord Jesus Christ fasted in the desert. So, right, we inhabit the role, we take on the role, we learn the lines. So, we fast. So you could be doing some little fast. I mean, would it kill you? Give up something. And I don't care if you forgot to give it up on Ash Wednesday. Start learning your lines now. Start learning the role now. Give it up now. No problem. You can start tomorrow morning. This is Sunday, so let's say Sunday. We'll give you Sunday, okay? Sunday. After all, we're civilised. We're not savages. You know, Sunday is, is a day of jubilee. It's a day of rest. It's a day of celebration. So yeah, tomorrow you can start. Give up something. And then do something. Do something a little extra.
give alms. You see a beggar, give him something. And if you say, oh, well, if I give him something, he'll just spend it on drink. Maybe he needs an old slug. Did you ever think of that? Maybe he needs a, a wee dram. I, I'm not defending drunkenness. I'm just saying, you know, try not to be priggish about this. You know, like one of those uh, improving Edwardian proto-social workers. Chesterton give out stink about them. You know, they used to complain, oh, the poor, they'll go off and spend what money they have on a Cornish pasty and a beer. Uh, and Cornish pasties are no good for you at all. They're just full of offal. They just taste nice. And, uh, well, all right, beer is some good to you, but they'd be far better off buying a sheep's head and boiling it and making soup. And Chesterton died laughing at this. Chesterton was a big, fat, happy man. Like He died laughing at this and he said, if you're poor, you need a treat. You need some dignity in your life. You need to feel expansive, feel good about yourself, feel good about the world. You need a treat. Will you let him have his pasty and his beer and stop bothering the poor man? A sheep's head, for the love of God. It's bad enough you're outside, frozen. You come in, you haven't a penny. And to face that, boiling away on the range, oh Lord. I think Brendan Bean is a great short story about a sheep's head on the range. Give alms. Bring a bit of light into somebody's life. Give them a few bobs so they can have a coffee or a cup of tea and a sandwich or, or fine, sure, if they go off and buy a packet of fags with it. Maybe they need a smoke. I was told a great story about that, and I'll tell you, this is a man that was treading the boars. This is a man who had taken on Christ. He had put on Christ and he'd learned the lines. He had gone out to meet God. He had joined the strolling players of heaven, the theatrical company of heaven. Hmm? It was told to me by a sacristan, in one of our towns, in our parish, he was a famous man, the sacristan, actually, in that parish. Very famous man. His father had been the sacristan, or the clerk, as they called him, and he had taken over the job from his father. And he remembered he was down with his father in the parish priest's house counting the collection. And in came an old woman from a very poor part of the town. And the housekeeper showed her in. The old parish priest, he was, he was an archdeacon, he stood up and she said, Archdeacon, I'm here to take the pledge. And the archdeacon said, now the, the old woman apparently was notorious for going on the tear in the town. And the archdeacon said, you want to take the pledge, Mary, and where you're living? Don't be ridiculous, he said. Sit down there. And he turns to the housekeeper. Bridie, will you get me a fresh glass? And he pours her a whiskey and tells her to pull up by the fire for a while. And as the old sacristan said to me, and he was a young man then, he said, wasn't that a great example for a young fella? Wasn't that a great priest? He knew her circumstances. He knew his flock. He smelled of the sheep. And he knew that why she used to go on the tear. She was living in awful circumstances. She was very poor. And far from judging her, right, you might say he was wrong to give her the drink. He gave her a bit of happiness. He put a bit of happiness into her life. It's a difficult line to walk and it's easy to get the lines wrong. But this is the role you were born for. I mean, this is your Gandolfini role. I mean, Gandolfini, it was as if Tony Soprano was a character just waiting for him. You know, this, this is your role and it is the role of Jesus Christ. So that others can look at you having put on Christ and they will see Christ in what you do. That's what Lent is about. Theatre workshop. Method acting. We have to think our way into the role. We have to walk like him. We have to talk like him. 
If you exaggerate, it's all the better because we can tame that and train it. Overacting can be cured. How do we do this? Be workmanlike about it. Belt and braces. I've said this before. This is a job of work. I remember as a student in St. Charlotte's, back in the day when it was a boarding school, and boarding schools always have loads of clubs and societies because, you know, otherwise the lads will just burn the house down. You know, it's better to keep them moving, keep them doing things. And there was a drama shop, there was a drama society, and it was run by a very gifted teacher. I can say his name. He was a gifted man, Joe Donoghue, the late Joe Donoghue. Died young, tragically. He had just, I think, been appointed vice principal in, in Jarlath back in 05 and he died. Died of cancer. Oh, Joe, Joe's, Joe's gifted. Great teacher, great director. But um, we were doing a play and he had spoken to us for a while about the role, about the part, the, the parts that we had and the play in general. And then suddenly he stopped. Now Joe had a temper like a lot of creative people. Suddenly he stopped and he frowned. And he said, I've been talking for the last 10 minutes about this and none of you are writing it down. And then his voice rose and he said, Richard Burton, and he named the great stage and film actor of the time, Richard Burton carries a notebook and a biro to work. He's not too grand to do it, but you're all too posh to be serious about what we're doing. I can tell you the next time we came down there, we had notebooks and biros. And we wrote down what was said to us by the master, which is what he was, a master, and we the apprentices. And there was no shame in being an apprentice, particularly not to a master like that. I mean, you think if it's good enough for all these great actors, as they say, thespians, these great thespians, you know, if it's good enough for them, shouldn't it be good enough for us? And if it's good enough for God to inhabit humanity, shouldn't it be good enough for us to inhabit God? You are, by baptism, incorporated into Jesus Christ. In the words of St. Paul, living stones making up a spiritual building. You're in the Trinity, even now, because the kingdom is already among us, even now, without knowing it. Now, we must be driving the Trinity crazy. Dear Lord, how we must look. I mean to God, even to the holy souls. God love them as if they don't have enough to worry about. I mean, purgatory is enough. But to be looking at us making a pig's breakfast of it, sleepwalking through all of this. We're going around in the costumes, but we haven't learned the lines, so we just look ridiculous. It's like as if you came onto a film set and you saw a whole load of people in a play about the Middle Ages and they're all standing around smoking or that. There's nothing wrong with it, but it looks ridiculous. I mean, presumably they don't let outsiders in like that. They're dressed for one role and they're, inha they're inhabiting another. We must dress for the role we intend to inhabit. We must put on Christ. Now that costume, that costume once it's put on, it cannot be taken off. For he that puts his hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. It cannot be taken off. You must keep going. It doesn't have to be pretty, but you must keep going. I believe in Shakespeare's day, the crowd, you know, the crowd down in the cheap standing area. If they didn't like a play, they'd pelt the actors. That's a famous joke anyway. So they'd bring in, I don't know, had, was the potato in England at the time? I can't remember. Was it Raleigh that brought the potato back? 
Anyway, they probably bring in turnips or the like, you know, they bring in old rotten fruit and things like that, and they'd pelt it at the players if the play was no good or the acting was no good. That was immediate response, okay? There was no such thing as waiting for the, for the critics in the paper in the morning. That was an immediate and ruthless response. If the metaphor were not a metaphor and I were on the stage for real, I'd have been pelted off ages ago. Some of us really, really make, we make hard work of the thing. And, and I don't mean in the good sense. I mean, we make an awful hash of it. In the hands of a master, the role should look easy, but the saints, at goodness knows at what cost. Do you remember I talked about the cost of inhabiting those roles as an actor? Do you imagine the cost of sanctity? Because the saints are the great masters. They're the ones who, when you meet them, you've met Christ. You've met Christ. You have. I'd have loved to meet Padre Pio. Now, I believe he could be a holy terror if he was in a tether about something, but, I mean, he was a great saint. He wasn't God. But he looks so, I don't know, jolly, even though he had an awfully hard life. I believe the Cura Dar was very happy. St. Philip Neri was famously happy. He was always play-acting and acting the Egypt on the street in Rome. Francis. These are the great actors. You see, our problem is we associate acting with insincerity. And the word sincere, literally, as you know, it comes from the Latin word sine cera, without wax, because the Romans took their theatre, their conventions from the Greeks, and the Greek actors wore masks in the theatre, as in the classical Japanese theatre, the actors wear masks in the, in the no dramas, in OH, the no dramas, which Yeats so admired. They were happy masks, sad masks, tragic masks, demonic masks, and so on. And the masks were made of wax, because it was presumably easy to sculpt. And to be sincere is to be without a mask, without wax, without a mask. In other words, not acting. But here the thing is, the greatest acting is not acting. The greatest acting is sine cera. It is sincere. It is without a mask. Because you have gone past putting on the role and you have become the role. That is the ultimate acting. That's a spiritual journey. And we have our spiritual journey, which is the spiritual journey. Now here it gets lively. Because people who think acting is a frivolous occupation are idiots, like the ones who think teaching is, a, is an easy job. And teaching and acting, by the way, are closely connected. You see the way all this links in? I'm telling you. And acting and the priesthood, and teaching and the priesthood are closely connected. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So don't get up on your high horse with me. Acting and the priesthood are closely connected, and that's not... John Paul II had the makings of a first-class actor as a young university student. And nobody accused him of not being sincere. These things are closely connected. The cost of it? I remember talking to a young amateur actor, an excellent young actor, but amateur, not professional. I think he might be semi-professional, but he, I know he has a day job, as they say. And he told me that one night they were packing the house. I think it was in Galway. And he had a tummy bug. I mean, a stomach bug is awful. You don't care if you live or die or you don't think you do while you have it. And he had the lead role. Now that's bad. Number two, his understudy was out. And the show must go on. So what did he do? All right, don't be disgusted. He got them to put a bucket, a fire bucket, 
at each end of the stage, just out of sight of the audience, and was violently ill in between his monologues, in between the, the scenes and so on. Violently ill. And would come back out again and got through the night. And that's just amateur. You tell me that's easy? You tell me that's frivolous? That's superficial? Man, woman, rent a reality. Get a life. These people are serious. These are serious people. And you must be serious. If you're going to put on Christ, you must be serious. Or they'll pelt you off the stage. And there are dragons on this road, I admit it. There is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, again, is a word that comes from the theatre. The hypocrite, the mask wearer. It comes from the theatre. There are hypocrites. There are hypocritical priests, hypocritical lay people. I mean, clearly there were priests who, who were doing all the awful things we heard of and, and saying mass and regarded maybe as good and even holy men by congregations. And, and it was clear to us a few years ago that there were lay people going to mass receiving communion who had voted for abortion. Yes, there's hypocrisy. But if you're going to jump up on the chair screeching like some kind of an Edwardian heroine in a, in a cheap play because she sees a mouse, well, then the show's over. I mean, a Christian needs to be made of sterner stuff than that. You're just going to have to face the danger of hypocrisy, of being a, a tartuffe. Wasn't that Moliere's play? That play about the Jansenistic tartuffe, the uh, hypocrite, the rigorist. We have to get stuck in. The show must go on. And here's the thing. There is no understudy for your part. You can say, oh, well, someone else will do it. No, they won't do it, because nobody else can do it like you do it. You are the great actor. You are the one called to greatness. You are the one called to put on Christ. You are the one called to go out there in front of everyone and be Jesus Christ for everyone. And nobody else can do that. They can put on Christ, but they can't be you putting on Christ. You have to do it. Acting has its limits. And they can't do that. You must put on Christ. There's no understudy. And if you make a hash of it, you make a hash of it. And if you forget your lines, you forget your lines. And if you drop something, trip, or have to end up putting a bucket on either side of the stage in which to perform the most gothic functions, so be it. The show must go on. You must continue what you have begun. There's nothing back there for you. This role is made for you. He has shown you how to do it. Because he himself has completely inhabited our part. And now we, we must inhabit his. That's what this Lent should be. Theatre workshop. You know, I'm just thinking of all the great actors, the great roles, of how much effort and devotion is put into that. Jesus Christ frequently referred to the business people and he said, look at the men of the world, they're about their business and the children of light, they're not even up. I'm obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm very loosely quoting. The devil has no trouble acting his part. He takes on many roles and he's brilliant at all of them. So we have to act Christ's part and we have to learn how to do that. Another thing I find it very hard to do, I'm Irish and I'm from the West and uh, I suppose I'm hot-headed in a way and then I suppose, you know, there's probably an ancestral 
slight feeling of inferiority if I don't know what it is but I'd be sensitive I think a lot of Irish people are very easily hurt for all our pretense to toughness we're very easily hurt and I find it very hard not to answer with a with a wounding retort when somebody wounds me here again I forget the lines I make a hash of the row but to be Christ is to respond, yes, maybe with wit, with a good parry, but with charity, without wounding, without drawing blood, without causing pain. And that's hard. You do remember what happened to him in the end. If you get a chance, just go into YouTube, and I think maybe you should be able to find one or two interviews with Jim Caviezel, the actor who played our Lord in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film. Wonderful film. I mean, he'll tell you so many awful things happened to him. It really was weird. I think he was hit by lightning up on the cross. But I mean, a whole load of stuff happened. They dislocated his shoulder when they were stretching him on the cross. So he was in agony up on it. He completely entered into that role and he was given the privilege of entering into it. But, (laughs) oh, when Christ gives you a privilege like that, It generally hurts, (laughs) you know. You really should, if you get a chance, just listen to him talk about that performance. Please don't be put off by failure in this. I know failure is humiliating. It's very humiliating to fail on stage. Of course it is, in front of everybody. But please don't be put off by that. There are any number of people waiting to pounce on your hypocrisies waiting to pounce on your failures, your inconsistencies, your forgetting your lines, your inauthentic costume, your, you know, all the stuff. Inhabit the role. Be him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm bringing you in this an incomparable gift, but <laughs> costing not less than everything, as, I've, as we've said before, Eliot's phrase, costing not less than everything. This is the the role of a lifetime. It will define you. There is no coming back from it. And if you do it right, please God, you'll never work again in this town. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, having enjoyed being with you for this time, I don't know how things are going for you, but keep plugging, stick at it, learn your lines. Your public are waiting for you. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.